Leadership's incredibly lonely. People will smell very quickly the way their leader thinks, acts, behaves and so on and what they value is different from what they want the business to think, believe and value. The belief part, it's the spirit of the business that's foundational for the culture. Hello and welcome to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, brought to you by SG Partners. Each episode allows you to hear from real leaders of real businesses with the aim of assisting you to become even more effective at what you do. Whether you're already a leader, CEO, business owner, manager, or an entrepreneur. This exploration of leadership effectiveness covers a range of challenges you may already be experiencing yourself. Now, let's hear from our host, international speaker master, NLP practitioner, and owner of SG Partners, Michael Lane. Hello, and welcome to Traits of Effective Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Michael Lang, owner of SG Partners, and I'm excited to be joined by Robert Nankervis in this episode. Rob is a business consultant, advisor, and executive coach who specializes in strategic planning, organizational review, and managing change. Rob is the author of Propelling Performance, which provides a simple step-by-step guide to surface underlying beliefs, shaping strategy, developing execution disciplines, and adopting the leadership traits that actually drive success. He also hosts the Propelling Performance Podcast, an in-depth interview series with top business experts and leaders from across the globe. In his in-depth expertise spanning over 30 years plus, provides founders, owners, CEOs, and senior executives with the support they need to face challenging growth periods and company transformation. I hope you enjoy this conversation, as I will. So, Rob Nankervis, thank you very much for joining me today. Really appreciate it and really looking forward to learning more about you and your experiences with many businesses that you've engaged with over the years. Great to be here, Michael. So, Rob, let me just do a quick introduction to yourself. So, you started life at SMS Management Technology. Is that where you started? Oh, look, uh, many years ago when people were chiselling things on, on stone tablets, I was uh, an accountant originally, but yeah, that was about the first 15 years of my career and consulting and coaching has been the last 20. Right. Okay. So out of interest, what got you into consulting? Well, it was really the accounting work actually blended into um, to doing systems work and working in internal consultancy in commercial enterprises. And it seemed a natural segue then that that was something I enjoyed actually, and uh, much more than the sort of more technical accounting work. And so couldn't perceive myself going on just being an, a, an accounting technician, if you like, for the whole of my career. So um, it was a, a fortunate happenstance that I gravitated across into consulting and um, sort of went from projects into leadership consulting and that got me into coaching. And I suppose one of the pinnacles of working for someone else in that capacity was Ernst & Young, correct? Yeah, look, it's, it's always good to have some experience in one of the kind of the big brands and so on. And, and I guess up to that point, a lot of my work had been in, in larger organisations. And when I had a bit of a reflection about what I really wanted to do when I grew up, it was interesting to kind of see what was on that other side. The You know, what I noticed in looking at some of the really big organisations is they were quite cumbersome, slow and so on. And so I, I um, was thinking about what the mid-tier might offer. And a, and a friend of mine actually said, look, I think you'd really um, be able to add some value to the mid-market. And um, look, it's just been such a privilege working with these sort of founder owner CEOs in driving these mid-tier businesses. And going out on your own, which you know is, is daunting to some, and you've, you've been doing it for a number of years. So obviously, you've found a successful model. Was there any tools or strategies or models out there that you gravitated towards? 
The thing that I, re- I realised I didn't have when I was going it on my own, because I had all the basic consulting skills and those sorts of things, but it was the brand. I didn't have any particular personal brand behind me. And so one of the things that I did was connect with the guys at Scaling Up. And of course, one of the, the key modalities that I coach is through the um, the Scaling Up intellectual property and so on. So to be able to rely on that the brand and that support and a very large coach community around the world that Vern Harnish started a couple of decades ago has been um, very advantageous. And of course, you know, over I've been doing this now for about eight years, been also building my own brand with, you know, book, podcast and things like that and my own leadership column. So I think foundationally, it was great to have scaling up. A lot of people know that brand around the world. And that was certainly a really important tool in, in getting started. And I think like most professionals, we just add things as we go to make that journey a bit richer for the clients we're dealing with. So that's the way I've um, run it in my own practice. And to some degree, your success means that you're now on the global advisory board of, of Scaling Up of Vern Harnish. So well done to you. And being a certified coach, it also enables you to go in with certain tools and strategies that are repeatable as well. So if we go back to all the clients that you've been working with over these years, right, if there was one thing, if there was one thing in common that all these clients did or didn't do, what would that be? Look, I think particularly with the mid-market, what I find is that they're extremely passionate about their product or service, their customers, their staff, and so on. I think one of the things that they often get stuck on is that the folks who are running it have typically come out of some sort of functional role, whether they've been a legal professional, an accountant, whether they sell trucks, they've been a surveyor, they're engineers. So whatever that ground is, perhaps they're um, in the agribusiness or allied health professionals. I've had clients in all these different sorts of spaces. And they're really good at their actual craft, Michael. You know, they're good at the thing. The challenge is that because of how good they are at that, they've built a business that's scaling and then running the business that does the thing is actually quite a different task. And so part of my role as, as their coach is to help them to sort of shine a light on, you know, things like their belief systems, what the strategy needs to be, introducing execution disciplines that you need in a in an increasingly large business and so on. And so putting some of those bits of jigsaw puzzle, I guess, together because it's it's just not it ends up not being sufficient to just be really good at the job. And Rob, have you seen a pattern of a consistent trigger point that gets them to that time where they say, I need to reach out, I need to get an external assistance on this? There are a number of trigger points, I think, Michael. One of the common ones is intergenerational change. So it may be a child taking over the business from a father or a mother, you know, the family transition. It's sometimes to do with something major that's gone on in the business. Perhaps they've just got a bit of indigestion from acquiring another business. It could be that they have some multiple owners and they're trying to get some alignment. And usually it's some variation of we know we've got a whole lot of the underlying things that we need to have a successful business because I don't deal with any startups. It's all really well-established business. On average, they're more than 10 years old. They're millions or tens of millions turnover. So they're already successful to a level. Good customer base, robust products and services, all that sort of stuff's in place. And, but they've, they've, for some reason, they've hit a bit of a block, they're stuck. And so that's when they tend to reach out. You know, perhaps it's underperformance in a particular year. And they thought, look, if we've got everything, why are we, why are we here? <laughs> you know, it should be better than this. 
So I, I come in and help them to uh, get clear on some of these things and make the decisions to take it to the next level. And normally it's something like, you know, we'd like our business to be twice as big as it is. That's a common thing. You know, we're at X. We'd like to be at 2X in three to five years. How do we do that? And they want to be 2X because they've got some outcome in mind from that as far as selling it, divesting it some way. In some cases, yes. You know, I'm dealing with one at the moment where that specifically is an objective. And so they're looking at a multi-year horizon where they say, look, what would we have to get this business looking like so that it would be um, in good nick to sell? But mostly they're not like that. One business I'm dealing with is in its fourth generation. It's almost 90 years old. So they've been through a whole lot of challenges over, over that period of time, as you can imagine. And they're not a business that's selling. They're just trying to get better with each generation. So all sorts of drivers for what they want to do. But I actually like the idea that even if they don't want to sell it, that these leaders are making a business that's really valuable in case they either wanted or needed to sell it. So it's about having choices, getting to a position where you have some choices. Absolutely. And invariably the choices are maybe they're not at the helm anymore. So when you think about all the organisations you've assisted and learnt and things that you've learnt, when we focus on culture, what do you think the most important aspects are that you need to focus on as a leader to cultivate company culture? Look, I think the most common definition of culture, Michael, is people say, look, it's how we do things around here. And to me, that's really made up of what's the belief system in the business? What's the mindset? What do we think about in the business, sort of strategically business model and so on? And then what do we actually do? How do we show up? And so the most important part to me about that is really around the belief part. It's the spirit of the business that's foundational for the culture. And to me, that revolves around what are the values and behaviours that we have inside the business? Why are we here? You know, who are we here to serve? Why do we do what we do? And what's our bigger vision, really, the unachievable kind of light on the hill type thing that we're aiming this business at? The second part of it, and that's a piece I think that the people tend to miss, is being clear as a leader about who you are. And it's being that authentic truth to yourself not aspirational, not I wish I was or I wish our business was like this. And then it's a case of, in a leadership sense, making sure that your beliefs and values and so on um, have alignment into what you're running out into the business. Because people will smell very quickly the way their leader thinks, acts, behaves and so on and what they value is different from what they want the business to think, believe and value. And so that incongruence tends to unpick things for for leadership teams in my experience. And in your experience, Rob, is it an exception that you'd find a company like this and a leader like this or something that you have to work on all the time? Look, I think the thing that people struggle with is is about having values. The the reality is that in everything that everyone does, there are values present anyway. It's just a case of whether they've been thoughtful about how those things have been drawn out. And I use that term advisedly because some people like to create their values. I tend to look at it from a point of view and saying, well, look, let's distill them from who we really are. And uh, we're not inventing things. You know, we've all been into businesses where they've proudly got these things chiseled into a glass uh, template on the front desk. But the reality is very few people actually know what the values are in their business. And one of the early exercises I do with the teams is to help draw that out What are the three to five things that really represent who they are at their best? And what are the behaviours that would would tell us that those things are actually happening? And 
And then I encourage them to say, look, how do we bring those things into regular conversation inside the business? How do you use those to work out who should be working here and who shouldn't when you're trying to recruit people? And so that way it becomes much more part of their regular day in the life in the business. Yeah, I agree. And from my experience, a lot of leaders struggle actually articulating above the line and below the line behaviours aligned to those values. Again, as you said, it's written up on some wall. And my question to them is, well, how would you know that I'm exhibiting that value? So that's part of the challenge. If they can't articulate the behaviours and they can't articulate it with clarity, how are people expected to perform in their organisation? Yep. And it's also the case, you know, that, that sometimes they just have, they, they might have gone to the trouble of creating, like drawing some of these out, but there's just too many and no one can remember them. There's kind of confusion. Isn't that value a bit like value number seven? And so we try and get them a bit discreet three to five things, you know, would you and I be able to judge whether each other are, you know, week to week, month to month, kind of living in alignment with these things? And yeah, the experience that I've you. had with business that have done it is that that sense of clarity and alignment that they get, particularly in assessing who the teams are and, you know, who should be there and who shouldn't, has been a very powerful informer of them getting their team right. Yeah, I totally agree. So let's move on to strategy. What are the key activities needed to be consistently apply to ensure people are aligned to the strategy? So we have a strategy, but it's getting that alignment. And I know you focus a lot on that. Yeah, look, the interesting thing to me, you know, again, going back to your early question, having worked with corporates for years, lots of the time they'd go away and have their strategic retreat, but you wouldn't hear anything about it until the next strategic retreat. And so part of the, the challenge for me is it's, it's both backwards and forwards, Michael. So backwards, the strategy needs to be framed because you really understand what the belief system of the business is so that the choices that you're making strategically are aligned with who you are as a business. So there's congruence there. The second part of it, and I touched on this in the what's called the aspiration section of my book, is that we really have to get clear on what the customer expects of us. Mm. So if we understand what who we are and what we expect of ourselves and we also understand what the customer expects of us, we've kind of got the left and right of arc for where our strategic choices can sit. And so with those things in mind, we can then start to think about, well, what do we need to choose to do? You know, and then you go into the kind of the unique differentiated typical strategy phrases to live out what we expect of ourselves and what the customers expect of us. And so I tend to cover this in my annual strategy sessions and so on with the clients and we kind of have it within that type of setting. The next step is sort of so what at the end, right? <laughs> then you've got to actually do something with that. How does your, say, three to five year set of strategic choices and We'd normally say to people, you know, if you're going from X, say, to 2X, you know, you want to achieve these things in the next three years, what's that going to take? Are there maybe three to five streams of work or capability developments that will actually get you to your destination? And then it's a case of breaking that down into the annual and saying, well, if that's true, and if we're standing at the three-year point looking back, what must be true now? What do you need to do in year one? And then we break that down further and say, well, what does that mean for quarter one? And then what does that mean quarter one for you? (laughs) And so what we do around the leadership table is people take out their own three to five specific accountabilities that they've committed to in front of their peers for what they're going to do against those strategic objectives. 
And so what we've done is taken it from, if you like, the more esoteric belief system of why we're here at all and what are our values down to what does the customer expect, what are we therefore choosing to do, and what does that mean for you, me, and everyone else on the executive team in the coming 90 days? And so to back that up, in that accountability sense, we have metrics around it. So how will we know we've been successful in achieving these things? And the other part is communicating it so that not only the leadership team, but the wider group in the business actually know where this thing's going and who's on point for what in that next 90-day period. So it's really a lot about clarity and alignment. So Rob, totally agree with everything you shared. And in my experience, the challenge is getting that cadence going. Because they say, yeah, we've done it, and then just they go off and chase something else. And you mentioned accountability. In my experience, leadership really struggles with accountability. Yep. What's been some interesting examples of where they've been able to keep it alive? So one of the ways that we do it is by having a regular cadence. So with my retained clients, every 90 days I'm back there and we're checking in on, well, you said you were going to do this for the, the quarter, Michael. How'd you go? Is it red, green, or orange? You know, green, yes, it's done. Orange, it's not quite done, but it's about due for sign-off. In the next one to two weeks, it'll be done. And red is everything else. So, look, on the whole, we our goal is 75 to 80% greens. So, you know, roughly you've got four out of five of your things done. And over time, my experience is that people get better at judging what can I get done in that quarter. The other thing, so we have that cadence set up, but I also train them how to have a monthly and weekly cadence in between and daily huddles and things like that that are part of the scaling up model so that there is this regular rhythm in the business. So their 90-day goals, they can break down into what lots of people would know as kind of agile sprints, you know, that these one to two week exercises. And also, I I get the leaders coaching down their organisation. So if you and I have got our own 90-day goals, um, say I'm running the finance team, I go back to the finance team and say, look, I've just been at the strategy retreat. Here's what the business is trying to get done as a whole. Here's the handful of things that I end up getting, taking accountability for out of that. As a team in finance, what are we all going to do? And specifically, what are you all going to do against that? Mm. And so we end up with this idea of top to bottom really aligned so that people are doing things that they know are important against what the company's trying to do. And usefully, it then gives the leaders like you and I for on that team the opportunity to go back to them and say, so instead of people having their coffee catch-up, which people tell me they do with their team, I want them to have a more structured coaching call. Right. You know, how are you going, Michael, with those three to five things that um, you committed to with your team? Where are you stuck? How can I help? Right. And so you know, not taking anything away from your success. You know, I'm just reflecting on what I've done in 12 years. There's been organisations where you thought you could have got there, but you gave up. Yep. What has been the consistent thing you've seen of the reasons they've given up? I think if they take on too much, and so I remember being with one leadership team and we talk about the three to five things and their HR director said, look, there's lots on and I've got 12. Right. So we came back next next time and, look, we let that sit and, we, and so we came back next time and, of course, there were lots of reds amongst the 12. So it was a kind of a lesson that, you know, you have to – there are some superordinate things that need to be done for the business and people have to get better at choosing those and actually getting permission to stop stuff. Right. And I think to your question, that's one of the, the things that people 
find hardest, particularly entrepreneurs. There's an excitement with starting things and the energy that that creates. It's much harder for most of us to stop things. And so part of the conversation becomes, look, you know, to get to do A, B and C, is there anything we need to stop doing? And in your experience, Rob, do you also find that some leaders find it hard to make decisions? Yep. And some leaders want to make too many decisions. <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes to be involved in lots of things that they don't have to be involved in, but they're they're used to it. And I think one of the, I think it's an idiosyncrasy in a sense of often family-owned businesses is because if there's a, a like particularly a patriarch, matriarch owns the business, there is a a bit of a deference of people wanting to keep getting their permission to do things because a lot of the team think, oh, really, I'm I'm spending Bill and Mary's money whenever I decide right. to do something. And if Bill and Mary, of course, wish to God that these people would, that they're paying would just go and do the job they paid them to do. But often these businesses attract people who like being in a family business and in a sense sometimes get treated like the kids. You know, yeah. you may have had this experience as well that this is almost this paternalistic culture develops. So that's one of the things that we try and overcome by getting really clear about whose role is what, who's accountable for what, and making that pretty clear about, well, if you're the CEO, here's, here's the sort of things that, you know, you need to be accountable for. I don't think you need to be deciding on what type of pencils we order. Exactly. The control freaks of the world. So, which leads to what are the three core leadership traits you think are most important to be a great leader? The traits I would describe, the sort of the way I've described them in the book is that the, the senior leaders have to stop thinking of themselves as a chief executive officer and start thinking of themselves more as a chief energy officer. And so the core principle behind my book was that there are really three main spheres of energy that you control as a leader, and that's the energy around what you believe, the energy around what you conceive, and the energy around what you achieve. And so this is really, if you like, the mind, body, spirit of an organisation. And too often, I think leaders get trapped in the operational part, which is what I would call the achieve part, which is where you're lining up the structure processes people. It's the most visible thing. And for people who've come out of functional type backgrounds, it's the obvious place to play. When you're running a whole organisation, it's a lot more complex than that, obviously. And you need to have skills and leadership traits in these other dimensions as well. So, under believe you're shaping the values, vision and purpose of the organisation. Whereas under conceive, it's much more around the business model, the strategy and the risks. And so I think people need to be able to play across those different facets of the business to be able to lead well. I suppose when you talk about those three areas, people will play where they're most comfortable. Yep. Right? And people will also play in what's uncomfortable if they've got the inspiration to do it or if someone is guiding them to do it. Because as general human beings, we like to feel comfortable more often than not. And as you said, you started with by saying the companies you work with, they've had a great idea and they're usually the expert on that idea. But when it actually comes to leading the company, they're not an expert at that. And what, what I find challenging is they're not consistently looking to be an expert in that area as in leading. So they go by default to managing because that's what's easiest for them. So um, part of the role that we have as, as coaches is to help them lift up those skill sets. 
It is true, though, that for some, they may have a specific skill set that they really want to keep pursuing, and they'd rather have somebody else come in and lead the business. And And that's happened in a couple of organisations I've been coaching where they brought in an external COO, CEO, and that's been a very effective approach. The leader has sometimes just uh, been more the chair or they've been kind of the carrier of the values and, and purpose and vision of the business where the strategic and operational parts have been run by the COO. So that's been another way of, of tackling it if the person either doesn't want to or can't lift those leadership skills. And it takes a very self-aware leader or owner of the business to understand that and get out of their own way, right? Oh, massive respect for the ones who can because it's sort of like handing over your baby to somebody else, you know. Yeah. But there's another motivation that I find, Michael, and that's if, if people at some point wish to sell the business, having somebody else leading it can be quite a good strategy because it helps separate that owner-leader part for when you make the final transition to another owner. Key man risk, isn't it? I mean, decide whether you want to be sold with a business or we don't. If you don't, then <laughs> replace yourself. And for those who think they do, they probably don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not until they're in their first year of earnout will they find out that, oh, heck, I made a mistake. <laughs> Want to get weekly industry insights, experiences, leadership and sales tips? Sign up now to receive our newsletter at sgpartners.com.au. Cool. All right. Number one lesson learned from people's failures. I think the biggest failures that people would tell me has been their failure around what they've done with their own people. The people they've either kept on that they shouldn't have, particularly, you know, often the loyalty, and I, I touched on this before with family, the loyalty is very strong and often both ways between the, the staff and the owners and the reverse. But it can mean that people get stuck and held on to for too long. They are the poor values fit, or as or as the business scales, their skill set doesn't scale sufficiently to continue yeah. working at the level they need to. And the other part is that they're not that great at hiring, and so they may in fact introduce some virus folk to the business that they prefer not to have had there. And so there is such leverage when I've seen organisations have really got this right. The performance that they're and lift that they've got out of having the right people on deck in the right seats, doing the right things, has been extremely powerful. You mentioned loyalty. Is it loyalty or is it the moving away from conflict? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I actually think it's a bit of both, and they probably conflate those things. But you know, I remember a case where there's a guy who probably shouldn't have been in this client organization, but some of the work he had done over time, the owner told me he had been really fundamental in helping the business in some of its toughest times. And so he was, by my assessment, on the behaviours and the skill sets and so on, somebody who really shouldn't have been in the business because he was disruptive. He was actually degrading the culture around the other people he was leading. So, you know, you had one person who was problematic creating four other problematic people. Like, this was a real issue. But sort of to the credit of the owner, he was reflecting on on this guy's history and respecting what he'd done. And we had to kind of separate out, yes, well, that's great, but that is still history. And there's been support over time for what was done then. We need something quite different now. And this is actually actively damaging your business. So, And how long did it take for him to finally make a decision and act on that decision, Rob? Oh, a long time. And uh, I just had one one recently um, where there was a leader in their business and there were some difficulties with that person. 
And I said, look, I, I think this sounds very similar to a conversation we had 12 months ago about this. <laughs> and they agreed. They realised that in in the loyalty and the, the hope and the aspiration that this person would lift yeah. just didn't happen. You mentioned loyalty and aspiration. I think the hope, that they hold on to hope because the other alternative is they need to make a decision to get them to leave and then they've got a gap to fill, right? Yep. Either they don't believe that there's someone else there, out there that could fill the gap or they don't want to fill the gap in the meantime or they're not quite sure how to fill the gap and what happens afterwards, right? Yes, yeah, so the lack of a plan B is often a barrier. You're right. I can't think of an exception where they haven't done what they need to do and then said, Wow, um, that would have been well done quite some time ago. There haven't been any regrets that I can think of. On the that only one. regret is they say, if only I'd done this sooner. No, that's correct. That's the only regret. It's not the regret of the, the loss. It's the regret that, they, that there's a missed opportunity in the meantime of what they could have done. So, And, of course, a lot of stress and carrying it. And, yes. and what people tell me, Michael, is that they spend way too much time dealing with their non-fit non-performers than they do with the people that they are trying to retain who are their top performers and of course ironically this annoys the top performers and they're actually more likely to leave so right on their own steam because they said i'm not being appreciated i'm out of here and i want a new challenge i'm not getting it here yeah you're right and it's really interesting the organizations that need their top talent the most to get them through the quagmire or, or being stuck are the organisations that don't realise in their top performers league, right? Yep. And, and sometimes aren't just clear enough, you know, quarter to quarter on who their top performers are. And so what I get them to do is just say, look, you know, who are these individuals? We know who they are by name. And who are the kind of ones who are on the track as well so that we get some of your top performers mentoring your top performers in waiting which is kind of reflecting the respect we have for both those groups. So, But you have to take the time to actually uh, get your leadership group aligned on identifying them and agreeing the actions. So a lot of things that you've been doing over the years is around change management and transformation role. So what are the most important things that people need to be focused on to get this right? I think the first key thing is why are we doing this? You know, why are we taking this business on the ride? Why are we acquiring another business? You know, why, why, why? And so if people understand the rationale, and I think the other part of it is then making that rationale clear. So bringing out the repeated messages about where we're taking the business and so on and backing it with demonstrated actions, you know, and going back to what I talked about before, what are we going to stop? Because, you know, if we say we're going into this new territory or this product line or whatever, well, are we going to stop old product line? Are we going to shut off old system? Are we going to stop dealing with the customer group that we've said are no longer our core customer group? Or is that an as well? And so there's partly these physical demonstrations of the difference. And it's not just getting A3 flyers put up around on all the walls and things like that. People see through those things if nothing else happens around it. So so I think there's a congruence to all the actions that people need to take that show that this is actually true. There are numbers on it that you talk to next month, next quarter. Here's what we said we do. Here's what we've actually done. And it builds this trust in leaders. And what, what I like is what you shared is a lot of people would just constantly say, this is what we're going to start doing. But I love that distinction you made. Well, what about the things we're going to stop doing? That is really thought-provoking, Rob. Yeah. So well done to you. So. Are there any other factors that we need to consider within the leadership group 
when we're transforming. Because you're right, it's, it's the why and it's the continual articulation of the why, the emotional context. And it's what we're going to start doing, what we're going to stop doing. But in my experience in Transformation Change Program, it's that cadence of what leaders need to do, right? And they can talk about it, but as you said, what do they need to demonstrate? So what is the cadence that you think they need to do in your experience? Well, I think it's the it's the initial piece of communication, but it's the storytelling around that. And what I try and get leaders to do is to keep hooking back to the belief system. Why do we do what we do? How is this aligned with our values? How is this moving us towards our vision? How is this helping our customers? And so the people have got these little hooks then to say, oh, yeah, this isn't just because Bluey had a nice uh, walk out in the park this morning and came out with a brilliant new insight, right? There's actually a lot of rationale behind this and, and why we should be doing it as an organisation, why it makes sense for our customers, what's in it for me, you know, how will life be better, different or whatever for me? And the reality that not all changes are good for all people. And so and I think there has to be an honesty with that, that if um, we've got two factories and one's closing or we're offshoring or whatever we're doing, this stuff sometimes uh, can't get candy coated, you know, um, what does it actually mean? And so the power I think that leaders get out of this is if they're couching these decisions against where the business is going as a whole, it depersonalizes it to the extent that people don't think, oh, it's not just because they don't like me, they don't like our function, our group or whatever. Even if I don't like the decision, I actually understand and respect why the business has made this decision because the boss has been saying for the last two years, we're going from here to there and I can see how this decision gets us from here to there. Yeah. Even though I'm not a beneficiary of it myself. And so I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is if you are on these journeys of growth, transformation and so on, inevitably there'll be something in the way. You know, you're inside the current, if you like, atmosphere that you're in. You're trying to blast your rocket out into the universe. There's a barrier. And, and our job as leaders is to understand what those barriers are and to help people disassemble them. What are those things that we're going to um, knock into? And what are the enablers that we have to add to help people? Do we need extra resources? Do we need a new system? Do we need to buy more machine, another factory, more vehicles? What's going to help us to actually get there? And I think when you have all those things in place, what it allows is for the wider team to tell themselves their own story, because remember, you know, as leaders, we can tell the story, but it's kind of it's our story. Yeah. They have The success comes when they tell themselves a productive story about what needs to be done. And if we've given them enough hooks about the values, the purpose, the vision, customer expectation, the strategy we have for the next couple of years, how we're going to get rid of some of the things that are in our road together, some of the, you know, where we're spending on some of these enablers to help them do the job. They've got a whole lot of hooks there that they can start to build their own more micro decisions around about how to advance the cause in their own area. So, Rob, you mentioned what's in it for me. I was reading a business book about a company turnaround and they really grasped transparency to the point where they shared all their financials with all the employees. What they realised was that they actually also had to do an education of what financials mean and distill it down to what their role means in those financials. And, you know, some of that journey, some people realised what they were doing was not giving a return for the financials. And so they actually had to make a change or had to exit. 
How do you feel about that total transparency within an organisation? Because some leaders struggle with that. Yeah, they do. And I've had a couple that have, and I respect whatever they want to do, Michael, and see if their business they can decide. But when people do understand the numerics, and, and I remember um, travelling uh, a few years ago, I went to SRC in uh, Springfield, Missouri, which is Jack Stack's business, Springfield Remanufacturing Corporation. And they have numbers everywhere. In their break room, they have itemised balance sheet, profit and loss, cash flow statement that's a wall height whiteboard with all these things handwritten on it. There's no mystery about what their numbers are. And on the back of the lady who was showing me around, on the back of her ID card was the bonus levels. If we make this much profit, we're at bonus level one. If we make this much more profit, we're at bonus level two. She said, there's no mystery about what we get paid. Like we know the performance that's expected and they've got traffic light. They've got actual traffic lights actually in the one I visited showing how they're going data on everything at everyone's workstation there's a whiteboard a tv screen and jack's view is that people love sport and when you go along with the sport there's a scoreboard up right you know whatever the sport is there's a detailed scoreboard right and you know you go to the olympics you go to any of the um football codes here cricket doesn't matter what the sport is you can right in front of you is the scoreboard And he said, business is the only place where this doesn't happen, right? And he said, if people like sport, why don't we gamify business a bit more and make it more engaging? And so if you go through the process I've been discussing where you're really clear about what you believe about the strategy to deliver on those beliefs, about how you're going to execute on it, and then you start saying, well, what do the numbers have to look like to show us that this is happening? And then you start putting those up and people get less I think, less scared about those things, to your point before, as you educate them on them, as they see that nobody died from being kind of accountable to what, what, their, what their number was this quarter. And it really does normalise these things. And I've been really humbled by, by how open a lot of these founder owners in their, in their own businesses have been around, um, around the numbers and the, how that liberates the team, really, when they can uh, see what's making a difference and what isn't. Yeah. I think the book was written around that factory you went to, actually. It's so called speak- the maybe called the Great Game of Business. That's it. That's the one. Thank yep. you. All right. Yep. So speaking of great books, you've got a picture behind you, Propelling Performance, your book. Uh, how many years in the making, Rob? <laughs> Too many years. <laughs> uh, a very long gestation of that baby, Michael. But, um, but you're, uh, you're getting the content perfect along the journey, right? <laughs> Well, the interesting thing is that I was actually pleased that the distillation process in the end took longer because the more recent work that I've done over the last couple of years with clients and so on um, really helped to add some more stories to the book and some insights, which when I first started writing it, I wouldn't have had. So so despite getting a fair old touch-up from my accountability group and my coach about how long it was taking me, it was, uh, I think, time well spent and I'm very happy with the product. And of course, in a COVID year last year, it was good to use that lockdown time when, you know, the time I saved from not traveling yeah. to actually get the thing over the line and start a podcast and so on. I, I didn't want to leave a COVID year with not much to show for it. So Fantastic. So I'm walking uh, through the airport, which is a rare occurrence these days, <laughs> and you got the, your, your bookshop there and I see your book there. Why should I buy it? My goal is to help 5,000 businesses. So, and obviously in my, <laughs> in my retained practice, I can only help about a dozen at a time. So this is really a distillation of what I think about business. And 
I wanted to have some Australian examples in there. So a lot of what we read is really based off the American literature and, and case studies. And so I wanted to give a salute to local businesses who've been doing some really great things. And I also want to declutter a lot. Like, you know, behind me here in my library, I've got over 400 leadership books. And a lot of the fundamentals and, and kind of natural systems of business, if you like, are pretty clear. But what wasn't clear to me in my own, when I've had my own leadership roles of teams and so on, you know, what levers do you pull and in what order? And so what I want to do through this book was say, look, there's a number of fundamentals. How do I break it into a model that people will be able to remember to put things into a into an order so that if if they're unclear what to do, there's at least there's a an order where they can start to unpick the best place to start. Because we can never do everything, but where where's the point of leverage where we can, as leaders, have our most beneficial impact? And that was uh, sort of the rationale for um, for doing it. So well done, um, well done to you. And how do I get access to that book? Off the website. I mean, it's on on all the typical Booktopias and book depositories and Amazons right. and and. Uh, off the robertnancurvis.com uh, website. So, And the podcast you're doing, how's that going? Yeah, it's been good. I recorded the first uh, season last year and that's been um, we've been rolling those out sort of every two weeks and in the next month or so we'll be recording season two. So, so yeah, the idea is, you know, kind of a couple of seasons of podcast a year that I sort of fit in around my real job of, uh, of coaching the clients. But, look, it's a great way of, of connecting people like my clients and some of the the experts that I'm privileged to be able to hang around with, but most people would never get to meet these folks. So um, it's a great way of sharing some of their wisdom and, and their stories uh, with a wider audience. So it's um, it's been a good thing to do. Well, Rob, I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom to my wider audience. And thank you very much for having this opportunity with me. Uh, I'd like to look forward to getting your book and digging even deeper and and sharing it with my audience. So thank you for that. And really appreciate the openness that you've uh, lent towards this podcast. So thank you. Great to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me on. You have been listening to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, a show which shares insights, experiences, and lessons learned by an incredible lineup of real business leaders. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review or share the show with a friend. To get the show notes from today's episode, go to sgpartners.com.au forward slash podcast. Don't want to miss a single episode? Sign up to be notified when the next one drops. Thank you so much for listening. Listening.